You're listening to Exit Point, a podcast about the advancement of base jumping and the exploration of its culture. I'm Laurent Fratt, producer and co-host. If you would like to support this independent production, you can visit our Buy Me a Coffee link in the description and give us a review wherever you listen to podcasts. In this episode, I speak with Caitlin Escott, also known as Compton, a performance wingsuit pilot, base jumper, and speed flyer. She was recommended to me by a few mutual friends as a potential guest. However, before I could invite her, she suffered a serious spinal injury while speed flying in Kamloops. Since her accident, she underwent a successful 10-hour surgery and has been making positive progress. Initially, I hesitated and considered waiting for her comeback story. But after seeing her social media feeds, I wanted to find out more about her resilience in the face of adversity. So with that, let's get Compton on the track. What do you think about this word community? Do you think that gets a strong term? And when it when we're talking about Sky Sports particularly, do you feel like it really means anything or does it have a strong significance to you you know it didn't used to and i used to think that it was a really cliche way to describe what it is until some of my close friends started dying and through that i really came to feel and believe that that is what we are as a community because of that shared experience through <laughs> losing friends yeah but also just in the in the ways that that my friends within the community showed up for each other and sorry helped. when i laugh like that i don't mean to belittle your thought about that at all that was not my intention at all but it was just sort of funny that that was like the original the first thing that came to mind like okay like we've all gone through a bunch of trauma so this is like drawing us together closer. It wasn't actually about like all the rad shit we do. Yeah. <laughs> it says a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Yeah. That's a, yeah. An interesting How do you feel like the up. community is the community there for you right now? Big time. Yeah. I think oh, more than awesome. any other time I'm feeling it the most right now. And I realize that, some of my deepest friendships that I've had in my whole lifespan have come from this community. And I've had a few people ask me, a um, few outsiders, if you will, <laughs> if, sure. yeah, um, that's applicable. <laughs> uh, you know, everyone has that weird question, like, oh, do you think you'll jump again? Which seems like a completely ridiculous question to me and probably everybody else. Um, and then, and then I've also had a few people reference um, themselves not necessarily being supported, like in climbing or or other sports, that they didn't have people that understood the drive to get back to doing the things. And that's not the experience that I'm having at all. Nobody in my life that I care about, that cares about me, has said anything to the tune of not doing these things again. Huh. Yeah. Um, 
I don't disagree with you. And uh, but I am a little bit like when I think about some of the friends that I've had that have gotten seriously injured, it's like they're in the hospital bed and they're like talking about how they can't wait to get back to it. And I'm not saying that this is your case at all, but it's always like the very early stages of recovery where you're like, oh, I can't wait to get back to it. I can't wait to get back to it. And then you sort of like rehabilitate and, you know, you start getting back to normal life kind of stuff. And, you know, you, you start being able to pick things up and sit down and, and get out of a chair without a whole lot of pain. And then the actual cost of actually going back to it like sets in. Have you had waves of this of like, wait a second, like all I can do is can't wait to get back in the mountains. And then this like, explain to me, like, because I know it can be sort of like a, a roller coaster ride in a way. And I'm kind of curious, like how, because you have to seem to have like this really, really, really positive outlook. And uh, I, I kind of want to like take some of that for me, like when I have hard times. Yeah, <clears throat> it's not easy. I'll tell you that. Um, and I think you've touched on something really important. And it's uh, these are some of the ups and downs, um, depending on how far in the future I'm putting my focus, because that is a major driving force for me is that I want to fly again. I want to be able to do my job again. And I have this little feeling inside, like I will do those things. But sometimes when like, I'll forget and I'll go to take the stairs two at a time and I can't, I don't have the strength to do that. And then I have to put my foot back down on the step before and then the first thought that pops into my head is how the fuck am i gonna go for a four-hour hike again like like you said i'm just figuring out how to do these very basic things right now so it is a balance between taking things day by day but also not losing sight of the big picture and I'm still figuring that out for myself. And I've got some, I've got some dark days and some dark thoughts, but they are punctuated by some pretty cool, amazing and hopeful things. I don't know you very well. Uh, and there was a bunch of our common friends who mentioned you and said this chick is ripping she's training super hard she flies really fast she's doing cool things in the mountains you should totally talk to her so tell me a little bit about your life before this what what was it like what were what were some of your main drivers because we just heard from you what your main driver is now but what was your main driver two years ago one year ago six months ago Probably in the last few years, it's been much the same. The more that I wingsuit and the more that I fly in the mountains, the more that I want to do it and the better I want to be. I mean, my, I guess my life 
my life before the accident or my life before flying? Before the accident. <laughs> <clears throat> um, yeah, I mean, I was, I was getting ready to go to the World Cup this year. Spend more time in Europe, flying in the mountains, spend more time training. I had a bunch of different coaching gigs set up for this spring. All of my big goals and things I was working towards were all, all the same things I'm working towards now. Although I wasn't also learning how to use a catheter or walk. It's like it, your goal is still there, but you're like a backwards telescope in a way, right? You're like been projected backwards a little bit. Yeah. There's just so many extra little steps now in between there. I mean, there isn't, there isn't. I mean, I, all of the work that I have done, a lot of that is still there in some way just need to get my physical body back up to snuff. What kind of work do you do? I do rope access. I've seen some of your Instagram pictures of you like working in some pretty cold conditions with this big smile on your face. And uh, yeah, so tell me about that a little bit because first it looks really cool. And then it also kind of like... Uh, what if the little I know about rope access is that it's sort of like a, a gig lifestyle, right? Like you go and do a job and then you have a big chunk of time and probably like a big chunk of cash. And what other people I know that are in that industry do is like, you know, go and do a bunch of skydiving or go do a bunch of base jumping. So it's like their motivation for the next job is to get a stack to go uh, fly. Is that sound about right that is 100 percent how i schedule my work and my flying is <laughs> around each other like that so i i know that i work for two or three months in the spring straight and then i don't really have to work again until the fall for about a month and in between those times i maybe pick up a few small jobs here and there like a week or two contracts but Generally speaking, the majority of my work happens for a few months in the spring and the fall in northern Alberta, mostly. Where are you sitting right now? Where are you like a, at a, a family member's house? Or are you at your own place? Or Yeah, my, um, my own place has been my van for the last seven years. <laughs> and my, my older sister has... Um, graciously made me my own space at her house. It's a, a big room with a, a desk in the corner and enough room for my yoga mat. And so I can have my own zone here and, and just focus on what I need to for the next few months. Let's talk about the stoke around flying for a minute. Because, I mean, you know, when people are listening to this, they can't really see like the sparkle in your eye and the big smile that you've got when we're, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> when we're talking about some of this stuff. And 
how did you hear about wingsuiting and base jumping? Is it something that you looked for? Like, cause some of the guests that we've had on, it's sort of like they just tripped and fell into it and other people like saw a video or, you know, and other people like heard of, from a friend about something that they were doing. What was your case? Yeah, I'm part of the tripping and falling category. Um, <laughs> I, I had been skydiving for not too long, um, two years and I didn't watch YouTube videos. I mean, when I started skydiving, that wasn't really a thing. Like there, there was YouTube and there was videos on there, but it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. And I certainly was not cruising YouTube for hours and hours. I had no idea what base jumping was. I'd never seen it. I barely knew what skydiving was when I started skydiving and um, this guy, Randy Schultz, he came into the drop zone and he had returned from Baffin Island and he had all his videos. And so he put them up on the TV in the drop zone. And that was my first exposure to both wingsuiting and base jumping was watching them fly over the fjords in, in Baffin Island. And it was just the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen and I didn't I didn't look at it and go that's what I want to do because it just seemed so out of this world it didn't seem like an attainable thing to have or to be or to do but I was obviously instantly intrigued and um, I became friends with Randy and pestered him about base jumping and wingsuiting and um and then he he taught me how to pack and I did that for ages I packed and he gave me Dukes's book to read said I had to do that before I did anything else <laughs> <laughs> and uh yeah I did my first base jump in October 2013 where was it it was off of this cable bridge that um, has a conveyor belt on it. Is this going to get you in trouble? Wait a second. If this is going to get you in trouble with your work, just don't tell me. No, um, <laughs> I don't think so. It's actually, it's right. it's a pretty funny story. Okay. Um, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't actually Randy. It was a, another friend of ours, Luke, who took me to this place to to go base jump it it's it's an abandoned part of a copper mine and he said this bridge is big it's 500 feet there's a road you can land on it's a great first object okay cool i'm ready so we but there's there's still people around it is still like a mining property so we did the whole like sneaking in thing and we got did all you wear all black oh yeah yeah no it was the yeah <laughs> like full like we're doing it we're like this is a base right. jumping mission i'm doing the thing so we got up under the bridge and got our rigs on and started walking out on this cable bridge and it's got this bounce to it and we're going along and i looked down at this road and i just i stopped and i looked down at it i said um 
the road looks really close to the bridge. And he's like, yeah, it does. I was like, well, I thought you said we could land on it. He's like, yeah, I thought you could. It's like, well, where did you land? He said, well, I've only been here once, but we didn't get to jump it. It was too windy. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So we keep walking down the bridge till we get to the center. And it is over like a gorge of death. It is like cliff on both sides. You have to, there's only one direction that you can fly to go land and you have to land on a very steep talus. And Wait for a, a first object. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, I had a super old FX rig with, I don't even know what the canopy was, but it was a 280. <laughs> and so we get out there and he's just kind of standing there for a sec, looking at everything. And then he looks at me and he goes, I'm not going to lie, Compton. This is a super gnarly first base jump. (laughs) (laughs) That's really great that uh, your mentor like failed to tell you that until you like had your toes over the edge. That's hilarious. Yeah. uh, Cool. So he just goes, it's uh, it's your choice. Um, We can do it if you want to. So I, I had a few minutes to think about it, but yeah, I, I climbed out there and had the longest countdown in history. Like my three, two, one probably took like a minute, a full minute. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I have a buddy that did that. Uh, a good friend who was like a very experienced wingsuit pilot do that at this object, uh, this cliff, you know, like where you, it was like positive. You couldn't see over the edge, you know, and he did this like, you know, like five minute, three, two, just like what you're talking about. Most agonizing moments of my life. Holy <laughs> shit. That's, that's why I can't teach people to base jump. It was just yeah. like, I'm so like, just way too empathetic. You know, it's like, I get up, I end up getting like caught up in everybody's fear. Like I can't even go yeah. to Brento. Cause like, there's like a, you know, a load of newbies there and I'm just, I'm horrified. It's like, I, I remember the last time I went to Brento, I was like, I can't wait to go back to Bravant where I feel comfortable. <laughs> You know, I I feel this too. I actually feel this a lot in the plane. Like watching AFF students leave an aircraft is the thing that makes me the most nervous. (laughs) This makes you like just triple check all your gear again. You're like, yeah. The way they yell in the door and the look (laughs) in their eyes, staring at their instructors. (laughs) Just not seeing anything. Yeah. Fuck, I need to take a few breaths after that. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> at a certain point you found wingsuiting though and um and you fell into i don't know if we could say that fell into it but you you got into competition flying and um i'm assuming that you know you, you're an intelligent person that you just realized that that's probably the best way to like train how to base jump is that right for wingsuit base jumping yeah. rather or was it something that you or are you one of those weirdos that thinks it's fun <laughs> um definitely both all right (laughs) yeah um yeah it's it's so weird learning to skydive uh in in bc at 182 drop zones you don't get exposed to all the same kind of stuff and i didn't have a community of wingsuiters to learn from i did about a 100 
wingsuit jumps not having a fucking clue really about any super technical stuff but i knew that i could fly fast <laughs> and at at that time it was i started wingsuiting um within a month actually of doing my first base jump and i was hanging out with base jumpers who uh, you know, the attitude was just that like skydiving was lame and skydivers were super lame and, and we all just wanted to be in the mountains. And that's all I knew that, um, you know, flying, being able to fly fast was going to be good for flying in the mountains. And then I didn't actually wear a fly sight or actually start training or doing competition stuff until 2018. And in that time, I discovered the broader wingsuiting community and I was learning more about how to have fun with it in the skydive environment. And I fell in love with skydiving in a whole new way because of that and i could really start to see the link in improving my wingsuiting skills as much as possible in as many ways as possible and how that could benefit me in base jumping and it was it was chris burns and luke rogers actually that chucked a fly set on me for the first time and helped me look over my data and really teach me about the competition flying and the more I do it the more I believe that it is the single most important thing that I've done for my base jumping yeah I think it's pretty um I mean it's undisputed that if you don't know how to maximize your performance that you're at a great disadvantage right this is going to sound super morbid but I've seen more than a couple fatality videos of wingsuiters going in and a lot of them didn't have maximum performance position or configuration. Yeah. And I'm not going to say if they had that they would still be here, but it increases your margin, right? Absolutely. And something that I always say is understanding what a feeling in your body translates to in numbers and actual tangible data is only going to make you safer and a, a more competent pilot. Like so many people think they're flaring when they are high speed stalling. <laughs> right. That's a very common thing. Do you think that if you could have one or the other, what's what's more important for survival? Skills or judgment? That's a really good question. And I'm trying to separate them in my mind and I can't. Because you think that judgment comes with skills? Yeah. Hmm. Having good judgment is a skill in and of itself. What is it? Can we break that down for a second? Because I'm kind of, and I don't really say, think I have the answers. 
like uh if judgment and and good decision making is a skill how do you measure it like we just talked about wingsuit flying right and like how you can like measure it with mm. a fly sight i don't think they've got a fly sight for judgment <laughs> i guess if we really want to measure good judgment in wingsuit base we have to understand what like best practices are right and how often you're stepping out of those so if you're if we have an established set of best practices and you're one of those people who are operating outside of that on a regular basis, probably you're, you're relying on your skill at some part and then also relying on luck on another part. Does that, does that sound right? Sort of like working this out as we go along here, but I think that, um, I'll answer this for myself and then you can disagree with me and I hope you will is that, um, you got to have like a, a baseline of skill, right? And when that skill improves, it gives you an opportunity to do more, right? Like you can fly a little bit farther. You can fly with a little bit more speed, a little bit more precision, a little bit more comfort that you can open on heading in a smaller deployment box. And so as that skill develops, you start shrinking margin a little bit to fit challenges and, and, and aspirations to push your, what you think is a progression, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, please go ahead. I, I think that knowing your skills is a judgment call and making good judgment calls is a skill i i'm and i keep trying to figure out what a base jump would look like with just one or the other and i really can't separate them in my mind i but i do know that there those two things are not always even like you're saying right now you're probably more reasonable person than i am like if you have like all judgment and no skill or i mean we're only like putting like you know those categories in 50 percent each but like if you're all judgment yeah yeah there's more base, yeah you're just not gonna base jump <laughs> exactly <laughs> <laughs> what about the best practices do you have a set of best practices worked out for yourself no I think that's something that's constantly evolving with my skill level. And I guess this is sort of um, conversations almost going in a way that um, makes me think of the, the high horses that base jumpers love to put themselves on when it comes to talking about judgment and skill and progression and motivation behind jumping. And I, I have things that I'm either comfortable with or not comfortable with, but I, I try my best not to dictate to other people what that should look like for them. Because that is why we base jump. Because there's no fucking rules. Like if we were going to draw like one common line between 
all base jumpers. That's probably one of them. The one of the things that really draws us to it. And so I do think that it it is a deeply personal thing. Um, what those best practices are. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with you to a certain extent. Well, I mean, another another part. I mean, I don't think that I started base jumping because there's no rules. Like, I then I'm not like necessarily one of those people who's like, mm. don't tell me what to do. Um, <laughs> I don't necessarily like it, but I wouldn't say that I. Okay, so with an abundance of rules is the lack of freedom, right? Mm. Definitely like the freedom experience that comes with it, for sure. And like, I definitely don't want someone coming up to me at the exit point and telling me what I can and can't do. For sure, I don't like that. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like um, it would be nice if everybody that was on here gave a little bit of an addition to what best practices look like so that we could find some sort of commonality. Let me put it this yeah. way. When you watch somebody's video, right. Who is going to crash, you know, that they're like outside of the boundaries of like what's survivable or sustainable. And yeah, that's subjective, right? I mean, you can just see through the comments, people are like, that's fucking awesome and this and that. And and then there's other people who are like, go fuck, man. Hey, bro. Like, it's usually in a PM or something like, are you OK? Or like, hey, slow down or and uh, I don't mean to take it into a dark place again. Fuck, I usually do this. But like <laughs> Burns, for example, you know, it was like all of his friends were worried. And yeah. All the guys at Squirrel were worried and everybody was worried and everybody was like, hey, man, like, you're, dude, you're awesome. Like, you are super good at this. Like, you are one of the best. Please pull back a little bit. But there's no like and when we look back at it, there's like there's nothing that we can say like, OK, this at this moment, you're going too far. Right. All right. Maybe like making a turn on terrain underneath a tree bow that might maybe i'm talking in circles here but um i'm curious what your thoughts are on like watching yourself watching your friends pushing limits and then deciding like hey look no this is sort of i'm we're operating outside of what's reasonable here do you do you have moments like that i mean like you sort of said before with the judgment thing if we were all judgment then we wouldn't base jump and i think just base jumping is kind of operating outside of a lot of parameters but yeah for sure i mean if you look at someone that is uh doesn't have a lot of judgment or skill it's really easy to go hey Maybe, you know, maybe just take a step back. Maybe go work on these skills. Um, you know, we don't want to see you go in because of this stupid thing or whatever. But in the case of someone that is highly skilled and knows exactly what they're doing and knows exactly the potential cost of what they're doing and decides to do it anyway, 
like, who am I and who is anyone to tell them that they shouldn't express themselves in the way that they continuously are choosing to? Like, that means something. Like, I'm sure someone could say the same shit about me. Like, we all fly close to stuff, right? But that's... Like, the people that... I guess... Love me and know me know that there's nothing to be gained by telling me that I shouldn't fly the way that I want to fly, the way that I'm inspired to fly. And... If we go back to the best practices thing, like there's lots of, there's lots of little sort of more specific things I could say, like a best practice for me is that I understand the weather. I understand the specific weather of the area that I'm at. I know the exit. I know, I know how to look at a topographical map and, and I know my personal numbers and I, best practice for me is being able to consider as many factors as I can and then fly in a way that is fun and exciting and inspiring for me personally. Yeah. I can't, there's nothing I can disagree with there. I mean, I think if I was going to throw something else on top of that, like immediately, it would be like, if you're on terrain, like you always have enough speed where you can flare and pull. I mean, I think that's, that's always my like number one. And there have been moments where I'm like over terrain and felt that like, Ooh, I can't flare and pull right now, but I can still, you know, I'm still, still going fast, just not fast enough for that. And I'm always like sort of disappointed and doesn't feel like a, a righteous jump when that happens. Hmm. But again, that's just me. It's super subjective. I'm wondering, you just were talking about, um, about how you were inspired and fun. And I'm going to be, I'm going to generalize here. And then this is like, it's impossible to talk about differences without generalizing. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that, women have a do a better job of staying righteous to their fun than men do mostly because and please again feel free to disagree with me here but i the the woman that i have spent the the women that i jump with seem to like lean into the fun part and don't really care as much about status or the video or things that come along with being, you know, in air quotes, recognized for something. What do you think about Mm. that? I mean, in terms of actual data analysis, I don't know if we have like a large enough group to make any conclusions you know that's true yeah for sure i think that the women that do this uh i mean but i don't know it's really hard for me to separate things into men and women um all the people that i know and that i like to fly with are having a fun time and yeah I, i you know there's different there's different levels 
of that for each person or how they express it, I think is different as well. Like I'm a very expressive person. I'm like obnoxiously excited in almost every landing area, but that doesn't mean that I'm having more fun than the person who just comes in and lands silently. Right. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> there's maybe something to be said for that, but, but yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, about the motivation thing as well. Like that, that's another one of the personal things and whatever motivations people have to do it. That Cool. Whatever that is. Even if your motivation is like, you want to make the sickest YouTube videos. Cool. That's like, that's, you know, not to be condescending or whatever, but like, it's your journey. If that's how you choose to experience this really cool thing, then Good for you. It's different than me. Doesn't mean it's wrong. Do you have much of a social media presence? I think because um, uh, I didn't. I'm not sorry. I I haven't. I've followed you on Instagram um, after I was sort of tipped off that I should pay attention to you, and then uh, so like I've I've seen what you put on Instagram, but it's only been recently. So I don't have a big picture of like how you've presented yourself online. And it's probably better that way, like just asking this question, like I'm, I, I wanna know how you feel about motivation, about the joy that may come from video and then what the experiences of sharing it, you know, on, on social media is like for you. And I, you know, I, people are probably tired of me asking this question all the time, but I think it's a big part of it. Mm -hmm. And I think that like, it's impossible to go to an exit point these days and not hear a deet, deet, deet before people are jumping. And so, you know, like if you don't think it's a big part of it, then you're kidding yourself. Yeah. Yeah. I guess I don't feel super strongly about it one way or the, the other. I use social media. Yes. I own more than one camera. I use them pretty often. I do post my flights. But it is certainly not the most important part of what I'm doing. And I regularly go for jumps by myself with no cameras because for me, it is a different experience and it feels a little more like I'm alone. And I really love that feeling. I know that I also really love seeing what my friends are up to and being inspired by people that I know personally. And I like being able to put my videos up and have my friends be stoked about it. That's a cool thing. It's, I think it like adds to the fun part for me. I like, like editing videos. You like editing videos? Yeah. Like, I'm, yeah. I like looking at data. I like <laughs> editing videos. Um, but I love being on mountains without the dee dee dee. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, you can, whatever way you want to experience it is, 
is totally cool. And for me, I like to do a, a little bit of all of it. So I don't have like a massive social media like following or presence, but yeah, I'm definitely on there and, and I share some stuff. So you've never felt like a strong urge to fly a certain line to refine a video, like refine a line to get that video. Hmm. I'd love to tell you absolutely not, but that's a lie. And I think it would probably be a lie for most people that, and maybe not all the time, you know, and uh, I really don't think that that's like a major driving force for me, but it is, I mean, my videos are also serve for me as a way to study lines. Like I, more often than posting them, I use my videos as a training tool so that I can fly the line the way that I'm dreaming of in my mind. Like my, my first flight's always what I refer to as a sightseeing tour. So I go and I like check it out, see what's what, and then I can just watch the video like over and over and over again. Not someone else's video, not whatever, but my, my own video and figure out for myself more creative ways to fly things. And so maybe, I don't know if the motivation is like that I want the sick video, but I want to get the video so that I can fly way more sick. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Tell me, um, so your life has changed drastically recently. Tell me what happened. Um, I'll do my best to explain this without um, using a lot of hand gestures. <laughs> but uh, so I went for a quick little speed flight that is uh, the landing area is a golf course that's right at the base of this mountain. The wind was not ideal. It was going. Um, from left to right, uh, kind of strong and gusty, but I've flown that mountain many times and in way worse conditions, that part wasn't really a big deal. But where the landing area is, the more towards the left you go, it's a bit of an uphill. So there's a bit of turbulence or like a wind shadow on the left-hand side of this landing area. So my plan for landing is that I would fly all the way right to the, the right end, do a nice flat turn and come in and land away from the turbulent air. I had two friends that had come to watch me fly. They were in the LZ. They were on the left-hand side of the LZ. And I came into land and just completely shit out any amount of good decision making. And I hooked a fat 180 harness turn. And so I had a significant amount of tailwind 
going into this 180. And then by the time I came all the way around, I was in the like turbulent and possibly dead air. I didn't have that same amount of wind to catch me on the other side. Um, and so I impacted the ground right at the, the end of the turn. My wing hadn't even begun to level out at all. And I didn't have time to get in any other position. So I hit in my flying seated position directly on my ass. I bounced and then came to rest about 20 feet away from the original impact. And wait, you, you hit the ground and immediately bounced 20 feet away. Yeah. Damn. So probably one of the most disturbing memories for me is in between the first hit, <laughs> the second hit, I watched my legs flop out in front of me, like completely lifeless. It's like they had become detached from me when I first hit the ground. And they just like, it was such a disgusting visual and feeling. I just watched them like, bleh, like flop Noodle on the ground. In front of you. And so I stayed in that position, holding myself up. So my hands sort of behind my back in that seated position. Um, and I yelled at my friends straight away, call an ambulance. I broke my back. Which I then repeated several, <laughs> several times. I've always wondered how I would deal with a traumatic injury. Turns out, not super well. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, the ambulance, thankfully, was very quick. About 10 minutes, they were there. Oh, wow. Um, and, yeah, I just, I just kept yelling. Oh my God. Oh my God. I fucked up so bad. I fucked up so bad. I broke my back. I broke my back. You, and you then, knew right away that you had broken your back. Did you yeah. feel a crunch or you just, the, what was it that signaled to you that your back was broken? Um, the leg thing, not being able to move them or feel them and the feeling in my back was like a pain that I could never have imagined and I would not wish on anybody. God, that's horrifying. Yeah. Did if I mean, I've been uh, pretty injured as well. Um, the pain sort of at first, I haven't broken my back. Hopefully never yet. <laughs> um, <laughs> the pain is like at first is like this shock, right? That you have and the pain is there's present, but it's not as pronounced as when a little bit of time elapses. Was that the case for you? Um, I or think you, because you those good drugs right away, huh? Yeah, I, they gave me the Antinox first, the laughing gas, and I told them straight away. I said, "This is not enough." 
I said, I know you have ketamine and I need you. <laughs> I need to be totally looked, disassociated. <laughs> I looked the woman straight in the eye and I said, I need you to knock me the fuck out. She Let's said, okay, we're going to give you the maximum dose of ketamine we can give you. You're not going to remember anything after this. And then the, the last thing I said to my friend, I was like, the keys for my van are on the tire on the passenger side. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. That would have made it a lot more difficult for your friends if they didn't know where your keys were. Could move. Yeah. That's like, a, I'm always surprised when jumpers don't do that because it's just, I always think that it's like a, this, a golden rule. Like you always leave the keys with the vehicle. I'm nodding in approval right here. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I was flown to Vancouver in the in a King Air, actually. That's the what they use for the air ambulance here. Good good aircraft. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the first couple of days was probably um a little bit of a there was some doubt, I imagine. Yeah. I it's so weird. I I always have this thing in my head like maybe it's not as bad as I think it is and I'm overreacting. Like even when I couldn't feel my legs, for some reason I was like, oh, maybe I'm just like being a baby about the whole situation and we'll get to the hospital and they'll x-ray me and they'll be like, you're fine. <laughs> and then they told me I need spinal surgery. I was like, oh, maybe I'll be fine after that. <laughs> and then it wasn't, it wasn't really until I first spoke with my surgeon um, one day post-op. He came in to see me. And then he gave me that 1% statistic. He said... 99 out of 100 people with your injury would be completely paralyzed. And then it hit me. Like, really how close I was to completely fucking it all up. And I, it was almost just pure luck that I didn't lose the use of my legs. So I, yeah, those first few days, um, like my whole family was there. I got four siblings and, and my mom and, and my dad's wife, they were all there. Like when I woke up from surgery, every single one of my family members was there. And I had other friends fly in from other countries, other provinces and so it was just like a really crazy mixture of emotions, the gratitude for all those people and all the love and support I felt. And then also just the, the terror of what was going to happen for me. Cause I couldn't out of surgery. I could, I could move and feel my right leg, but not my left leg. Not for, like a, a week and a half. And even then it was just like small bits. 
but each day there's been a little bit of progress and now I'm walking. Is the progress linear? Meaning like it, it continues to travel in a single direction? So far it has been that way for me. Um, but I have known from the start that I will reach plateaus and it won't always go in that direction. Um, and certainly not at as steep of an angle as it has. Um, right now I've kind of, I'm on a, a bit of a plateau because I've been instructed to only walk until I reach the three month mark. So I've seen the most amount of progress up until this point. And I don't, I mean, I don't know. Maybe I could still keep seeing some cool stuff like that. I hope so. But I do, I do know that like the, the biggest things have happened in the last six weeks. I'm going to ask you some pretty personal questions here. And if you feel like they're inappropriate, like just feel free to, to say no. You know, a lot of us think about when you're losing sensation in your legs and you have a spinal injury and stuff like that, you know, that you, and you're using a catheter to urinate that there's, there's probably some sensation lost. Um, how are you, how are you doing, you know, down there? <laughs> uh, yeah, I, when I first learned in the hospital that I would likely have lifelong bladder and bowel problems. It was really, really hard. I did not know how to deal with that information. And it came at a complete shock to me because I didn't know that that was even a possibility of an injury. Because I had had a catheter in for the first two weeks because I was coming out of surgery and and it wasn't until that they took the, it's called a Foley catheter. It wasn't until they took that out and I tried to urinate unsuccessfully on my own that I discovered that this was going to be a problem for me. But over my time in the rehabilitation center, I got a lot more used to the idea and tried to see some things about it that maybe weren't the worst. Like, I don't have the sensation of having a full bladder. My bladder does not signal to my brain that it's full or that I need to pee. So that's like kind of a weird little superpower now. I just never have to deal with a discomfort. <laughs> Although it advantages, I'm sure. Yeah. That is the thing that actually makes it kind of dangerous for me because I can't feel that it is possible that my bladder can overfill to a point where it damages my kidneys. So I do what's called intermittent catheterization. So I have these little tubes that I put in my urethra and I empty my bladder every four to six hours, depending on how much. I'm drinking and then I have to stop eating and drinking at about 6 p.m. 
so that my urine um, output decreases overnight so that I can get a full night's sleep. Otherwise, I have to wake myself up in the middle of the night and empty it so that it doesn't overfill, and that's super annoying. So I'm still learning on how to do all this and try to make it a little more natural for me. Um, you but, can probably pee standing up now, though, I bet. Yeah, I totally can. And um, <laughs> I mean, is there a way to get it to not splash or that's just like a thing that like you never, never improves? Are you asking someone else that has a tube where urine comes out of? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, am. It's sort of like you have to aim it correctly, right? And, um, you know, I've got like 45 years of practice. So, um, like maybe one day you'll be as good as this, Yeah. I, you know, my <laughs> wife might disagree with you or with me, but, um, <laughs> I don't know where we're going with this. Yeah. Yeah. But, it's, uh, the, uh, yeah, I don't know. Maybe uh, we'll have a pee <laughs> contest one day. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's still snow outside, so I could see how writing my name goes. Nice. Yeah. There'll, there'll be that one moment right where you and some girlfriends all stop to go pee and they'll like have to like go hide behind something and you'll just like be standing next to the car and ah. yeah and actually this is another like kind of um awesome thing that i discovered if i get the male catheters which are significantly longer um i can just pee out of my van from being inside of my van. I just like. <laughs> <laughs> you don't even have to get up. Amazing. No. So, I yeah. mean, that's another thing that um, is maybe not the worst, but. <laughs> Six o'clock is really early. Yeah. Stop and I. And drinking. I, I often fuck this up. I've, I've not like really fully built this into my schedule, um, especially now with the days getting longer here in the Northern Hemisphere. Um, you know, still full daylight at, at 6 p.m. And I like to have carbonated water drinks in the evening. Right. How is, how is alcohol? Is that. Like, has your relationship with alcohol changed? I mean, obviously, you just said it did, but... Actually, it sort of changed a few years ago. About three years ago, I decided to stop drinking alcohol because it actually has no health benefits. <laughs> um, and it didn't really was not aligning with where I wanted to go with my, my physical training. And I never had like a problem with alcohol or anything. I, I, I was never hard on it in the first place. So it wasn't super hard for me just to not do it. And, and then, yeah, they sell carbonated water by the can and, I found that if I just cracked a carbonated water at the end of a super awesome jumping day, there was no desire for me to even have a beer at all. And I've every now and then I'll have a beer or a glass of wine or something if I feel like it. But um, now recovering from my injury, it's especially important that I don't have any alcohol. 
um, I'm really very heavily focused on doing all of the best things that I can for my body and, and my mind. This might be even more personal than, than the peeing part, but like, what about the poop part? And, you know, like, yeah, I'm sort of questioning myself why I'm even asking you this stuff, but I think that, uh, you know, like we're, we talk a lot about all of the aspects of, of these sports and getting injured is like a, a pretty big part of it, you know, like, and I'm just like trying to help understand it, the picture as a whole. And your story is like, helps to, to, to make that picture whole. So that that's why I'm asking this stuff. Yeah. And that's part of the reason why I have been so open about all of that is that, you know, that femurs and broken ankles and shit like this is the obvious injuries and you don't have to really know much about them to know about them. And I didn't know anything about bladder and bowel function problems. I mean, what does that even mean? Most people don't know. I didn't know. And so, yeah, I don't mind answering questions about it because, okay, you can say you've like lost function, but what, what does that mean? Like for your life or, or whatever. And so the bowel function part for me is, well, it's kind of two parts. So one is that when you have a spinal cord injury, it slows down your digestive system. So most people, when you consume food, it takes about 24 hours for it to come out the other end. Somewhere around there, unless on average. Unless it's Taco Bell. It's accelerated. Yeah. Exponentially. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it usually happens within the 24-hour mark. Uh, and for me, it's about three days. Oh, wow. Yeah. And then... That's called gut motility, right? How fast it's uh, contracting and... There you go. Yeah. And also, I've lost some of the muscular control of um, my abdomen muscles. Some of them, not all of them. Uh, and then I don't have, or I didn't have like full contraction of the sphincter, the outer anal sphincter. So if your, or if, if my, poop is too soft then there's like not a lot to stop that from just coming out because of the weak um, muscles like around the rectum and then the anal sphincter so I mostly have to I mean I have a pretty good diet but because my digestive system is slower it means that it ha has the opportunity to harden up a, a bit more um, so that kind of happens naturally, which is great because, um, then I can't accidentally shit myself. I, I have to just like, I go and use the washroom like I normally would. Uh, but it happened a few times where I got too constipated, had to take some laxatives, overdid the laxatives and then shit myself for like a week. 
So I have some sensations of like the, when it moves like from, uh, from the intestine to the rectum, like that kind of pressure that you feel like you might need to shit. Some of that's still there. So often if I'm just near bathroom, it's totally fine. Sometimes I'm not. Um, but great news is for me, I didn't lose full control over those muscles. Um, it, they had to do a rectal exam, um, as part of my physical exam when I was admitted and I had a very faint, almost non-existent muscle contraction there. And that has improved significantly, um, in that time. And so it's not what it used to be, but it's much closer to that than what it was when I was first admitted to the hospital. Did you ever think that you would be talking about sphincter tone on a base jumping podcast? No, yeah, this is either. great. I actually kind of, it's, <laughs> it's so, um, yeah, it's kind of out there and then it's kind of not cause like we all shit, you know, and people are so weird about it. You and, know, I uh, had really bad Crohn's disease. I mean, I still I'll always have it, but, uh, you know, I've had like, a two thirds of my large intestine removed and, uh, spent years in pain. Uh, so all these weird shitting stories. I'm like, I have no, I've, 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 I've I, I know it all. Um, so <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, I can I can emulate or I can't emulate. I can definitely I can definitely like feel your pain on that kind of stuff because like I just was always like my biggest fear was that I would lose my bowel function and have to have like a colostomy or something and lose my uh, you know autonomy um, without the you know the help of of tools and um, and. Um, I never really thought about the urine part, um, but um, you seem to be handling this like really well. And uh, I think we started off by me telling you this, and you said you were doing everything that you can to help your like your mental state. Like, what what are some of those things? What are you doing to keep to stay positive? Well. I think a big part of that is not worrying about being positive. It's like this, it's this weird thing that people love to tell you like, Oh, just stay positive. And you're like, I'm in a fucking hospital bed and can't move one of my legs. And I'm like shitting myself. Like what the fuck? But yeah, I, for me, having the support of my family and friends has been a huge thing for me. Like, I don't know what I would do without all of those people. And, um, and doing, this is something that I'm struggling with, and I'm not always great at it, but focusing on the stuff that I can do and not what I can't do. That is really difficult for me, and it takes a conscious effort. Like right now, I am not allowed to do certain stretches. I'm not allowed to do certain 
mobility exercises. I'm not allowed to attempt to run. I am not allowed to lift anything over 10 pounds, which is basically nothing. That is not even a bag of groceries. But I can do breathing exercises. I can train my grip strength. I can do some balancing exercises. I can go and stand outside and face towards the sun. I can go walk around. I can try to catch up on like a thousand admin bullshit things. (laughs) 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 Um, And, and another big one is um, professional therapy. I have actually started doing personal coaching with Brett Kistler, who you've had on the podcast. He runs his own podcast, The Art of Accomplishment, which I recommend to everybody. It helped me a lot getting through the acute stages of grief after I lost my dad and it's helping me now and doing the therapy with him is has been really important for me um, to have someone understand the flying part. It just cuts out so much of the bullshit. It's true. There is like a lot of explaining and background speak with therapists and, and they'll, they'll always be on the outside in, in a way. And I could see how talking to Brett, would make it a little bit more efficient. Yeah, it certainly does. Like, man, I've just paid like how much money to tell you about my wingsuiting and then you've just like put me in this weird little box that's not accurate. And it's like, it just annoys me. Like I can't, (laughs) I mean, maybe that's not a good trait. I'm like annoyed by people that don't understand flying, but. (laughs) It's frustrating. No, it's frustrating because you're very driven. And uh, you're demanding results from yourself and the people around you. And then when people aren't setting up, aren't helping you to reach that at the speed that you think is uh, reasonable, it would be understandable that there's some frustration involved. And uh, Mm -hmm. I was a terrible patient. Terrible. And I'm not saying that you are, but... I am. No, I I totally am. Um, I think that one of the things about being injured and being a patient is like just having patience. And man, don't, I don't, I'm not good at that. And I always wanted to like have like immediate progress and like I refuse to be weak and I'm not a patient, you know, like I'm super capable person that takes care of other people. I'm not the one that needs taken care of. And, um, it took me a long time to sort of like soften to that idea that actually like I can slow down and actually like reach that finish line a little bit faster if I just give myself some time. And, um, yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're at least acknowledging that, that that's, that's a good route. Yeah. Well, you know, you and I are similar in all of the ways that you just described. It is really, really difficult for me 
to be like this. And that's something that I'm learning right now is that I've built my whole life, my personality around my physical body. Like I've made a career out of being way more physically capable than I should be for my size. That's all of my hobbies and it's scary to all of a sudden have this body that is weak and fragile and then to try to figure out what is left of me without it. And I'm still, like, I'm in the middle of it. And I don't know if I have any answers, but I do know that I'm learning a lot about myself. I know one thing for sure is that struggles like this build amazing character. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that, hey. (laughs) It seems like you already have a really nice character, so... Um, you know, I thought about this interview and, and talking to you and I hesitated because I thought this could be a really amazing story talking to you on the back end as like on the comeback. And <laughs> I kind of said, fuck it. You know, like I, I want to talk to you. I'm I'm really intrigued with the struggles that you're going through right now. And the way that you've uh, sort of presented yourself online is is intriguing. And um, you're, have, frankly, inspiring. And um, I wanted to mostly just have this focused conversation where we have these microphones and these headphones over our ears and and, and have a chance to to chat with you. And thank you very much for being so like genuine and honest about it. Cause it's not easy. And, um, you know, if people get some value out of, um, what's going on with you, uh, that's great. And if not, it's just been like a, a pleasure to, to chat with you. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise. So uh, I was thinking about that too, actually, like this, this whole idea of like, you know, comeback story and, um, had some pretty like angry dark days and just thought like um i don't know just been sort of like negative about the whole idea of that even and and i wrote on one of my posts like that that's it doesn't feel like that that's what this is or what it's gonna be um just being lost in my own grief about all of it and that's why I think it is it's interesting for me to have this conversation with you right now in the middle of it not on the back end and there's certainly value in that to me personally good I'm happy to hear that do you have an idea of what a comeback will look like or you know what? Why don't we just be dreamers at this point and, and and think about what an amazing comeback will feel like for you? 
with the limitations that you have, like, have you already started to paint that picture of like, what is it going to be like to, um, you know, pulling up, waking up in your van at the beginning of the hike and, you know, maybe carrying an extra catheter and, uh, spacing out your food just right the night before or three days prior and you know like the sort of like speed that you may be able to hike with and like <laughs> what are the hikes that you're going to be comfortable with <clears throat> what is the core strength that you're going to need before you can zip up again have you started to create that picture for yourself yeah it's like a little game i play with myself in my head all <laughs> I like to like pre I don't even know if it's that I like to I just end up always preemptively feeling things about stuff that hasn't happened yet um, which is um, not good in some circumstances and um, maybe sometimes beneficial in others but yeah I like just the thought of standing on top of of an exit in my wingsuit like not even the flying part of it but just standing there like nice when i envision it it's like maybe this time of year like nice cool crisp air it's calm sunny like this like the sound of my wingsuit coming out of the backpack and feeling of putting it on and just standing there in like complete solitude and contentment. That's a feeling that I really love. And I'm so excited to have that again. And <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> um, in terms of in terms of what it's gonna be like to get there, I don't know yet. When I reach the three month mark and I'm able to do more physiotherapy, I think I might have a better idea then of exactly the effort it's going to take to get back there because my core is very, very weak right now and my left leg is very weak, but I don't feel s scared that I won't get there. Like if I really go deep, deep down inside, there is this little feeling like I, I will just do whatever I need to do and it will take as much time as it's going to take and I will just keep doing what I can to get there. Wow. Well, I'm rooting for you. And I know a lot of people out there are too. And we started this conversation with community and um, I hope everyone will uh, live up to that term and share some love with you and uh, continue to cheer you on through this tough time. Yeah, it's been incredible, really. All this support that I've had from people all over the world. And yeah, it's a really cool community to be part of and feel like I won the friend lottery, really. I think we should end it here.
and um you're most active on instagram right so for people to follow along with your uh, your journey it's best yeah. on instagram yeah it is the best yeah all right well we'll link that in the show notes and um thank you thanks though that was a really nice conversation me too i really agree that was a great conversation We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have any thoughts about what you've just heard, please don't hesitate to hit us up. A big shout out to Mark Stockwell, our sound mixer and co-producer. We love you, man. If you'd like to learn more about the podcast, please visit exitpointpodcast.com. See you on the next one.